We've had a lot going on, and we're not done yet. We're going to share God's Word together from uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll look at God's Word together. Uh, we at Fullness, we, um, we believe in worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And for us, it's not a part and part proposition like 50% spirit, 50% truth. We believe in 100% of both. Embracing 100% of the Spirit of God and 100% of the Word of God. Um, we, we love to worship and sing. And we've had so many things going on today where our worship time, song time was a little shorter than usual. We love to pray for people. Um, we're going to celebrate communion later because we believe we're the body of Christ. And at that time, when God meets us at his table, we believe people will get healed. People will get set free. God will... God will move. We believe in a God who still speaks. We believe in a God who still moves. We believe in a God who is active on this earth. And we believe that many times God will speak to us about present situations through his, his word. And so we study God's word together. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We are studying First and Second Thessalonians. We just finished 1 Thessalonians, remember that 1 Thessalonians, for those of you who are new, I'm just going to, very short, um, brief um, summary, recap. Uh, Paul had gone to Thessalonica and started a church and got run out of town within three weeks. So he was not in Thessalonica very long. Uh, but he is writing back to them. He's gone on down to, from Thessalonica, which is in Greece, and he's gone down to Athens where he teaches at Mars Hill. Uh, he has that very incredible sermon. He, he's had other stops along the way. Goes to Athens, then goes to Corinth where he stays for a couple of years. And from Corinth, he's heard some things about the church back in Thessalonica. So he writes a letter back to them trying to help engage them and teach them. I mean, it's incredible to me. Every time I read First and Second Thessalonians, all the things Paul communicated to this group of believers in just three weeks. I mean, I've, been, I've done conferences before. I didn't get near this deep in three weeks. But he's teaching them about the coming of Christ, uh, the rapture, uh, the judgment of God, the Antichrist as we see the man of lawlessness. We'll study that next week. So buckle up uh, for next Sunday. I hate to kind of preview next Sunday and say you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. Uh, we'll talk about it next, him next week because people are fascinated by this topic. But in any case, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. He sends the letter back with Timothy. Uh, and then he gets word about how the letter's been received and some more things going on in the city. And so he writes, evidently, this second letter of Thessalonians within months of writing the first. So these two really do uh, go together. And he's going to continue some of, the same, some of the same themes that we've seen in the past. He's trying to ha answer the questions like, what happens to people when they die if Jesus hasn't come back? Uh, when will Jesus return? Uh, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're undergoing suffering and problems and circumstances in this world. And to complicate factors more, 
there's evidently a group of people who are telling the Thessalonians, and some of this we deduce from what we're reading scholars do, some of we just don't know. There are things in this book we, where Paul says to the people in Thessalonica, oh, you know, because I told you when I was there. We're going to see that next week. He's going to say something like, um, you know the man of lawlessness hasn't come because something is holding him back, and you know what that is, because I told you kind of thing. But we don't know. The readers don't know. We, we have no idea what he's referring to, so we'll see. There's a lot of speculation about what, what it is that may have been holding him, him back. But there are things he told them verbally, orally, that we don't know. But he, evidently, there's a group that's come into the church and is saying to them, hey, you missed the day of the Lord. It's already happened. It's already occurred. Because this is around 60 AD, probably 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, roughly, is when the letter is written. And so some people are saying to them, hey, you missed it. And Paul is writing back to them saying, hey, no, you didn't. Because here's some things that will happen when Jesus returns, when the day of the Lord. And, and then there's a lot of controversy on how to interpret these things. So I want to give you a refresher, and I don't have any time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So just hang on, because I'm going to give you a refresher. What did I do? Sorry, I'm not going to. Every time I push my screen, the video comes back up. Let's see if we can. Nope. This is so fun, isn't it? Thanks, Mary Jo. Mother, uh, video person. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, okay. Thanks, Jonathan. <clears throat> I was going to try and blitz through these terms about the end of time and uh, see if I could do that. Nope. Every time I push it, I'm so sorry. I love this video and everything, but... All right, I'm going to give you some key terms. You change them for me, if you can. All right, so key terms. Uh, the return of Christ. We, return, we believe in the imminent return of Jesus. The New Testament, it is throughout Jesus, throughout the New Testament. Sorry, I got distracted by that video that keeps playing. Um, but we believe that Christ is going to come back. Uh, it is all throughout the New Testament. We also believe, as we looked at in uh, at the end of chapter 4 and 5 in 1 Thessalonians, in the rapture, that the church will be taken out of here. We believe in, um, the, the, the Bible teaches about a thousand-year reign of Christ, which we know is the millennium. That's what the word means, millennium. By the way, the word millennium is actually never used in the Bible. And the thousand-year reign of Christ is actually only mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20. But the reign of Christ, the reign of the Lord, is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament through Isaiah and other prophetic books. So there's a lot you can put together. But I'm just saying that to say we place a lot of emphasis on this term millennium and thousand-year reign of Christ, which is not mentioned near as much in the Bible as we, 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 we talk about it. Um, tribulation, talking about having troubles. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about a seven-year period of time known as the tribulation. Whether that's a literal seven-year period 
is up for debate. I'm not going into all the terms. I'm just giving you the terms uh, so that you'll know when you see as people are talking about them. Um, we talk about the Antichrist, one who ra is raised up in the spirit of really the demonic who stands against Jesus and what he, who he is. And there's the spirit of Antichrist, which is all of all that stands against Jesus, but there is a prophetic coming of a figure, a man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. We'll talk about him next week. And then the final judgment or judgments, however many judgments you want to list. Now, here's why I'm giving you all these terms. Just look around. Somebody on your row believes different than you. I, I'm, I'm not kidding. We have almost, you can, you can number all of these uh, six different things, put them in a hat, and in that order, come, come up with another order, and somewhere in the church is that theology. Somewhere there's an order for how things are going to occur. And we probably have most, of, most all of those represented in our church at somewhere. I'm not saying this to make light of it. I'm not saying, I, I want you to study the end times, but I also want us to all recognize that whatever we think we know, we only know in part. We do not know fully. You do not, I, I don't, I, I'm sorry if I offend anyone here, but you may think you know, but you don't know fully because there's an aspect of this that is hidden doesn't mean we should just throw it away and say, don't think of it. Here's the one thing everybody in the church should agree on, no matter what, is that Jesus is coming back. In this same way that you've seen him go, he will return. We believe in the imminent physical return of Jesus Christ. It is the one prophetic, really one prophetic thing that is coming in the church that hasn't happened yet. And then when Jesus returns, a lot of things start happening. And we just don't all know what that is. Uh, and I hope you're comfortable with that um, because that's the position of our church. We have people ask, hey, are you a, are you a historic premillennialist? And I said, what day is it? <laughs> is it Tuesday? Probably. Uh, are you this? Are you that? Are you this? Or, you know, I, I, I mean... I, because I, I can see all aspects of these differing views of eschatology somewhere in the Bible, and I can show you difficult passages that, that come not against, but make it hard to re receive that thing. But in the end of 1 Thessalonians, you may be like, why is he talking about this? At the end of chapter 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, you see the rapture and then the day of the Lord taught. And then in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, he's going to speak on eternal judgment or judgment and then the man of lawlessness. And a lot of the views that various people have developed over the years come from the end of 1 Thessalonians and the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. So a lot of the various views about, for instance, those who believe in a rapture of the church followed by the tribulation look at the end of chapter 4 and verse and chapter 5 and say that's what he's saying there's a rapture and then the day of wrath is going to happen so rapture tribulation others will say i think 
day of wrath doesn't mean tribulation, but it means the judgment of God. So we believe in the return of Christ, rapture, and then final judgment. You can see both views, to me, in these passages. I am greatly impacted. Um, by the way, this is a great quote. Let's see. If I... <laughs> I love this quote. Is it me? It might be you. No. How do I exit? I don't know. Is it worth it? Yeah, yeah. Now I've messed it up totally. We'll be right to talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> I don't know. I just keep. Okay, you just change it for me. I can figure this out. Mona's got the skills. Adrian Rogers says this: When it comes to the return of Christ, I'm on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. <laughs> He's a famous pastor. I, I like this quote. Uh, again, not to say I'm ignorant in the subject. I have my views and opinions, but at the same time, I recognize I may not be right. When I was in college in 19. Seven, eight. Um, <laughs> it, it hurts to say. One of my favorite Bible teachers was a woman by the name of Dr. Rowena Strickland. Nobody names their kids Rowena anymore. I haven't sung Rowena, Jesus loves you in just the longest time. Uh, so <laughs> she was the first woman to get her doctorate in theology from a Southern Baptist seminary. So, and it had happened in the 40s, and so when I had her in the 70s, late 70s, she was already semi-retired, but um, she was, the, honestly, she was one of the best Bible teachers I've ever had in my life. She'd written her dissertation at Southwestern on the Jewish expectations for the Messiah, examining the Old Testament and looking at all the passages that prophetically predicted and talked about the coming of the Messiah and how they had interpreted those passages in such a way that when Jesus came, they totally missed him because he didn't match what their prophetic predictions spoke about. Now, it's always stuck with me in the same way that we know the prophetic predictions concerning the return of Christ, and we have the benefit of having the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the spirit of truth, but at the same time to recognize, I don't want to be so locked into a belief that it has to happen this way that I might possibly miss it. Uh, instead, and I, I don't know that that's possible within the old, within the, but to say, Look, there are clues, there are signs, but I don't know it all. And I don't actually believe that... Um, really, thank Craig. I don't really believe that's what Paul's trying to do here either. I don't think in my, what I'm looking at, he's trying to give us an exact interpretation of what the judgment and the man of lawlessness is going to look like, but instead he's trying to pastorally help the church. He's trying to pastor the church through this difficult time, and he's giving them some clues and signs for the days ahead. Okay, so here we go. First, 
uh, let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, and Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a typical introduction from Paul, but I don't want to so blitz through it that you miss the key aspect that he's saying to this church, you are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is the good news, that you are in God, and God is in you. That his presence indwells us, but you are held by him. And, and this is such a key factor that if I preach no other verses in this, I, I, I know the intros of Paul's letters, we blitz through the point, we just, because oh, he says it the same way, but what good news must this church have heard when Paul writes them and says to them, you are in God, our Father. Because they're getting hammered by the society. They're getting, they're under suffering and persecution. They're being questioned about whether their religion really matters. And Paul says to them, you are in God, our Father. Listen, people, when you go out from this place, you will have a world hitting you in the face with life and circumstances and situations. We've got midterm elections coming up Tuesday, and it's getting, it's ugly, it's getting uglier. And, and there are things about our faith that are right in front of us. And, and I want to encourage you to say, hey, church, fullness, you are in God. This should bring you comfort. This should bring you faith. And you're not only in God, you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, you can have grace and peace flowing in you and out of you to the world around you. You may say, you, Pastor, you don't, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know my situation. You don't know my family. You don't know my marriage. You don't know my job. You don't know. You don't know. Hey, listen, what Paul, this is Paul's entire setup here. His entire setup is say. He's about to say, no matter how bad it gets, you're in God and Jesus. Grace and peace can flow from you. You can be a person of grace and peace. And, and so he wants to encourage the church. And because they're coming under this persecution, they're getting this suffering, he wants to encourage them in the middle of their suffering. He says to this, uh, I'm gonna, our first point is this, he wants to talk about the present suffering. And he says in verses 3 and 4, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions you are enduring. Paul started a bunch of churches already. But he's saying to the church in Thessalonica, among all the churches that I've started, and no, I'm boasting about you. I'm telling them about you. What is it that he's telling them about them? Well, he's telling them that their faith is growing more and more. That present suffering, and this is the point, present suffering should result in increased faith. 
I didn't get near as many amens on that point as I thought I would. Uh, but <laughs> you're more excited about the in God and Christ Jesus part, which I am too. But the truth of God's word is this. Suffering produces something in your life. Suffering is not needless. Suffering is not useless. Suffering is, in fact, profitable. This present suffering will help your faith grow more and more, and it'll, it'll help you to love each other more and more. At love, every one of you has for each other. It's, it's increasing. What is Paul boasting on? He's boasting in their increase in faith and their increase in love for one another because they have perseverance and faith. in all the persecutions and trials. They're, they're under it. They're undergoing suffering. Now, do you know when I look back at my life, I look at my life and I say, how many times have I actually had to suffer for the gospel? Now, I've suffered, you've suffered, we've all suffered. We all suffer together. But how many times have we actually suffered for the gospel as a result of preaching the gospel? Um, and, and the limit, I, I have to be honest, I've got a pretty comfortable life when it comes to gospel suffering. Why is that? Well, we've created an atmosphere where suffering for the gospel has not been a big deal. Especially over the last, I'd say, 50 to 100 years in the American culture. But I, I, I'm not prophetic. I'm a teacher. But for my entire life, I've heard, I've heard and honestly, my entire life, that the culture is going to become more and more antagonistic to the gospel. And you know what? They're right. It is becoming more and more antagonistic. In other words, I can see, I can just see how in my early days, probably up until the last 10 to 20 years, I would say even if people weren't Christian or didn't go to church or follow Christ, they would have said, you know, the Christian moral standard, it's a, it's a benefit. It's a positive in our society. It impacts our society in a positive way. So even if I don't follow the church, those moral values still help us all. I would say that has radically changed. I would say that the prevailing view is that Christian moral values are oppressive. They rob people of meaning. I'm not saying they do. I'm saying this is our culture's view. It's becoming a time when it's more antagonistic for everything from gender to um, just going out there. What is the church's response to be? What is the church's response to be? This is the question that many of you individually are going to have to answer. Because I'm going to get in trouble. But just stay with me for one second. If we're not careful, 
the church's response will be a mirror response to the culture's response. If we're not careful, we'll say, I can be meaner than them. I can be more ugly than them. I can call names better than them. And I'm going to stand in a way. And then our position becomes so entrenched that if we're not careful, suddenly the moral aspect of being a Christian becomes more important than the message of being a Christian. The moral uh, aspect of a candidate becomes more important than the message of the church. Again, I didn't get quite so many amens on the last one, but that's all right. <laughs> Paul says in Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life, anybody? Anybody want to live a godly life in Christ? Oh, you didn't read, some of you read the last line and said, I'm not sure. Will be persecuted. Here's your promise that you don't get in the uh, word of faith doctrine every day, is it? Want to live a godly life in Christ? Great. You're going to be persecuted. It's the promise of God. In this life, you will have troubles, Jesus said. But we rejoice in the glory of God, Paul says. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And this spiral of hope that he lines out in, in Romans 5 where he says, because we know, we start with hope, and we know that suffering, which comes after hope, produces what? Perseverance. And perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And then hope produces suffering, which produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces more hope. It's not a circle that you end up at the same spot every time. I think it's like a spiral that you grow in character and hope. But how do you grow through character and hope? Persevering through suffering. Because suffering and perseverance are like the spiritual dumbbells of your life that build up your spiritual muscles. They help you. This present suffering is not useless. And as a matter of fact, if it increases, praise God. Not because we're suffering, but rather because our faith will grow, our love for one another will grow, and I contend that the gospel will be proclaimed in power. Second point, and I'm going to go much faster. I, I don't want to rush too much, but we do have communion. The second point has to do with the coming judgment. He says, all this, all this what? All this suffering, all this growing in faith, all this bragging on you, all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. So what is he saying to the church? He's saying, listen, this is evidence that the judgment of God, which is coming, is right. It's good. Why? Because you're going to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. That's why you're suffering, because of the kingdom of God. And God is just. Don't, <laughs> implicit, I think, in this statement is, don't 
repay evil with evil, which we can see in other places. Don't do things that repay what the suffering that you're... Instead, leave it to God. That's in Romans as well. Um, God, God is just. He's going to repay. He's going to pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Now, there's a lot of different ways to interpret those who trouble you. But I think in essence what he's saying is those who are, who are apart from Christ that are causing you suffering, they, their payment will come. Some argue about um, those who are in the church that are troubling them. And I, this is a little more complicated theologically. Um, and, and so I'm going to skip it. Um, <laughs> so, because I'm going to... Time. Time is an essence. But I know this. <laughs> we can talk about it later if you want. I can talk about any of these topics. I'm educated well beyond my intelligence, so we can, we can talk about some of these things. God is just, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. Here's the point. God is a just God, and he will mete out his justice. He will, you are in Christ, in God, he'll take care of you, and he'll take care of those who are not. And then the question arises, okay, great, when is this going to happen? Glad you asked. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Um, I, I think what Paul is saying to them is, look, you're undergoing suffering. You haven't missed the return of Christ. You haven't missed it because it will be obvious. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and his powerful angels will come. You haven't missed it. It's going to happen. It's still coming. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Paul is saying to them, you haven't missed it because when Jesus returns, this judgment is going to take place. Those who don't know Jesus will be separated from his presence and will be cast into everlasting destruction. A picture of hell. Now, I understand there are some who will say this is the coming of the tribulation. I, again, I, I know Jesus is coming, big things happen. Exactly what that's going to look like. To me, this looks more like Jesus is coming, final judgment. Because that point, they're going to be put into everlasting uh, destruction. So, for me, that's more of what, of what this looks like. But I don't know that Paul, again, I don't think Paul is arguing the point of Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. He's trying to encourage this church pastorally to say the suffering you're undergoing matters because here's what it produces and you haven't missed it. Stay on track. You haven't missed what God is going to do. I understand that hell is not a popular topic in this society. As a matter of fact, R.C. Sproul said this, I can't think of anything more politically incorrect to preach in the 21st century 
in 21st century America than the wrath of God or the justice of God or the doctrine of, doctrine of hell. There is a judgment coming. We believe in the imminent return of Christ, and the Bible is absolutely clear that his judgment is coming. It should not cause those of us who are believers fear because we're in God and in Christ. But those who are apart from God, the word is clear. They will be separated for all eternity from the presence of God. That is one definition of hell itself. To be constantly separated from the presence of God. As well as what Paul intends and means by this term eternal destruction. It won't be good. But for us who are here now, we have, we have a worthy calling. And that worthy calling is to share the gospel with the world around us. As I've said in the past, let me look at the passage. Paul says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may ful fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to live a life worthy of what he's saying here. This is not a, a works-based doctrine, but it is a worthy worship. That's what we're doing. We're declaring the worship of God. How? By the worthy way we live out our calling to the world around us. The judgment doesn't cause us fear, but it should increase our faith. The judgment should not make us separate. Instead, it should draw us together in love. The, the judgment of God that is coming should, should encourage us to, to proclaim the gospel to the world around us because there is coming a day when Jesus returns that's going to be clear, and that is it. That's it. But we have the meantime. And so I pray that Jesus as Paul does, will be glorified in you and you in him. This is a theological beauty to talk about Jesus being glorified in us. Is, now think about this, people. How, how incredible is it that Jesus' glory is revealed in us. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is already glorified. He's already magnified. He's at the right hand of God the Father. But when we suffer, when we persevere, when we grow in faith and love, Jesus is glorified. His, his glory is reflected in us to the world around us. And it's a beautiful picture and not only that, but we're glorified in him. We grow in faith and glory in him. And again, I don't know how to get all of us more excited about this. Uh, I don't know how to. I wish there were a way, in my words, I could stir this in you. 
to say, this is the good news. Jesus is being glorified in his body, known as fullness. When we come to this table, this is not some religious act or ritual we go through. This is, this is us declaring this is us declaring that because his body was broken, we who were many are now one. This is us together declaring that because of this cup, his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, we walk in forgiveness together. We forgive others as Christ forgave us. When we come to this table, we're saying, Jesus, be magnified in us. Let your glory shine to the world around us. Promise, here's your promise. Those who trust in Jesus will be persecuted. Promise, suffering is not needless. It produces character and hope. Promise that Jesus Christ is coming again. And at that point, his judgment will be meted out. Promise. Until then, his glory is being revealed in us and through us. Lord, we pray this morning, thanking you for all that you do indeed promise us. Lord, some of us look at this promise and we're, we're saying, that, that promise doesn't sound so great. But, Lord, you're using it for our good and your glory. And, Lord, we say thank you. Lord, we don't know exactly what the days ahead hold, but we trust in you. May faith and love and perseverance grow in us so that character and hope will be the distinguishing mark of this place. Lord, we thank you, we bless you, and we glory in you. As we come to this table now, Spirit of God, move among us. Heal those who need healing. Encourage those who are undergoing suffering and persecution. Lord, set those free who need freedom. Jesus, may we, as the body of Christ, come together to this table. May we not take it in a manner that's not worthy of what has happened. May we be one as you and the Father and the Spirit are one. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Stand up with me if you would. Here at Fullness, um, we believe that the table of the Lord, the bread and the cup, is for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. If you are one who's a follower of Jesus Christ, whatever your church background, you're, we believe you're a part of the body of Christ. So we invite you to the table of the Lord. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but you still like to come and get a blessing, just tell one of the couples, I'm not going to take it, but, and they'll still bless you if you'd like to come uh, to the front. And get the elements, the bread and the cup, then go back to your place and we will take it together as the body of Christ. Middle section down the middle aisles, outside section down the outside aisles. Church, come to the table.